Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And Children's Church is dismissed. Got the little kids, K through 5, going out that side right there with Miss Val. And you got the junior hires going out right side this door with Tony Teeman. And a good morning to you all. So take out your Bibles or your iPads, iPhones, Droids, Nooks, or Kindles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to take a look at verses 3 through 11 this morning. And I can tell you right now that I'm preaching to myself as much as I am preaching to my family. Affliction, suffering, we've all been there, or we will be. Suffering is an inevitable part of the Christian life. The more I explore the scriptures, the more I see God's word addressing affliction and pain and suffering. Each of the difficulties we face, though, is an opportunity to observe just how our merciful God meets our needs, our every need, through the gospel of grace. There are many types of affliction that come to the lives of believers in Jesus. It can be affliction resulting simply from believing in Christ, living out our faith. It can be affliction that results from our own bad choices, our own sin, the sin of others, um, relationship problems. Our children may walk away from us. Our spouse may have a problem that they're struggling with. Our boss at work may have the goal of making our life as miserable as possible. Then there's the affliction that comes seemingly randomly. That is, the affliction that comes to our life that in our view has no apparent reason. Affliction that comes only because it's part of God's overall plan for our lives. And no, we're not going to necessarily understand the why of it. We will not necessarily understand God's purpose. In fact, more often than not, from a human perspective, we will see no good reason for the random suffering that comes to our lives, period. Even though what we will be examining this morning applies to all forms of affliction, I'd like you to be thinking about affliction that seemingly comes from nowhere. Suffering that's not the result of the sin of others, Affliction that's not a consequence of our own sin. Comfort in that affliction is an important part of that discussion. <clears throat> Verse 3 in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Notice how Paul starts out this section of his letter to the Corinthian church. He intentionally praises God. Even though, as we will see, he had undergone an extremely difficult time in Asia. He made the time to praise God, thereby demonstrating his confidence in God. Again, he had gone through an intense time of affliction, but he knew for certain that God was with him through it, and that God would never forsake him no matter what. God gives you and me the same assurance, 
the same assurance in the midst of our affliction. Paul knew that praising God in the midst of our trouble causes us to focus on Him rather than on our affliction. Doing so will tend, not always, but it will tend to keep us from replaying in our minds over and over again the difficulties that we're going through. I have observed that praising God enables us to see, as Spurgeon talked about, the fact that God uses our troubles for our good and His glory. In verse 3, Paul referred to God Himself as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He saw God as full of compassion, as a God who felt pity at the sight of the affliction of one of His. He knew that only God is the source of all mercies, the source of all compassion. God alone can provide divine deliverance from our troubles and difficulties. Remember that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And it's worth noting that Paul mentions the mercies of God before he dives into the afflictions that we experience. He also refers to God as the God of all comfort. The word for comfort has the same root as the word for the Holy Spirit and conveys the idea of encouragement. Comfort here is not referring to mere support or some kind of inspiration. Instead, it refers to God's transformative compassion. His transformative compassion. His love for us and His kindness to us comes in the form of encouragement and it changes us. It changes how we view the suffering we are in. It causes us to understand and recognize that only His compassion can have any impact on the affliction that we experience. It results in us being able to do what Paul talks about in verse 4, comforting and encouraging others with the same comfort God provided to us. In Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, a fellow named David Powlison wrote, what we learn from God in our particular affliction becomes helpful to others in any affliction. It's a restatement of what Paul said here. Finally, understand that God is not only the God of some comfort, but the God of all comfort. He is the one who encourages us in the midst of affliction. The comfort or encouragement that God provides to us is comfort that is accomplished by God presently in the midst of the difficulties that we are experiencing currently and actively. And it's not something that we can cause to happen. Not only that, but God encourages us through our afflictions, through them, through our tribulations. Nowhere are we told as believers we're, gonna, we're exempt from affliction and difficulty and pain and suffering. No. It's understood from Paul's language that we will go through difficulties, afflictions, tribulation, pain. Even so, God moves us through that suffering. We don't do it. God moves us through the suffering. He comforts us in our affliction. He moves us in the affliction through it, providing encouragement along the way. And not just in some cases, but Paul says in all affliction, to the exclusion of nothing. Also in verse 4, we get a glimpse of one possible result, one possible outcome of the afflictions that come our way. Paul said, so that, and that tells us that there's a reason. He said, so that we may may be able to comfort or encourage those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Here we have a statement of habitual action on God's part, along with a statement of fact, with which we are comforted. It's not a maybe, it's not a possibility, it's a statement of fact that God comforts us 
And it is a description of the encouragement that comes our way from God, not just once, but continuously. It is a habitual action on His part that we receive encouragement from Him. God continuously providing comfort to us in our afflictions is a fact, period. Because of that fact, we all have the ability, the gifting to encourage and to comfort other believers as part of our lifestyle, as a continuous action. And it goes without saying that some people have that ability more than others. But all of us can provide comfort to one who is suffering. It doesn't say there's no exception in the Scripture. All of us have the ability to provide comfort to one going through difficulty. Understand that what Paul says here is not a command for us to comfort others. No, instead it's a statement that describes the life of the believer. It's what the believer's life will look like. That is, one of providing comfort to fellow believers when they are suffering. We have the privilege of mediating God's comfort to others in any and all affliction they may be experiencing. John Piper said, Suffering is a primary means of building compassion into the lives of God's people. God uses suffering to build compassion in our lives. And and, and Piper's right. We do have the privilege of showing compassion to fellow believers. This show of compassion is what characterizes our lives as believers. But too often we don't do so. So what keeps us from comforting others in their time of affliction? If you think about it, Way too often our identity is tied up in what we can be to other people. Our identity is tied up in what others may think of us. Or it's tied up in how we think they see us. Instead of our identity being tied up in who we are in Christ. That we are loved by God because of what Christ did for us. In other words, we're focused on ourselves instead of on other people. We're focused on ourselves rather than who we are in Christ. So because we see our identity wrongly, that is, what we can be to others or how they may see us, what keeps us from comforting other believers is the radical self-centeredness of the human heart. So often we don't think we can provide comfort and encouragement to another believer who's going through a time of suffering. Again, that's because we're self-absorbed. We're egocentric. We're worried about ourselves and our perceived inability to provide comfort more than we are aware of our identity in Christ or more than we are concerned about a fellow believer. We're worried about what we might say or do wrongly. We're worried that we won't know what to say, all because we're worried about what other people may think of us. And to justify our self-absorption, we tell ourselves, Well, that's the pastor's job anyway. Really? I don't see that. It's not there. Read an account of a man we'll call Sam, who's going through a very difficult time. Sam had two visitors as opposed to Job's three visitors. The first guy that came along sat and talked about his own difficulties, his own experiences with suffering. Talked about how sin could be the problem behind Sam's suffering. This guy asked Sam what God was teaching him through his difficulties and told him to cling to the promises of God. And he brought out the old standby of Romans 8.28 and laid it on him. He prayed with, with Sam, but his prayer was more preaching at Sam than it was intercession on his behalf. 
Sam couldn't wait for that guy to leave. Now, theology is important, but timing is everything. Second visitor came. He sat with Sam. He cried with him, and he just listened to him as Sam poured out the grief that he was experiencing. Second visitor offered no cure for Sam's suffering from Scripture. He didn't talk about what might have been the reason for the affliction. He just listened, prayed a simple prayer, and left. And Sam didn't want him to leave. Why? Why? It's because the second guy was living out the gospel. He wasn't worried about how he looked. He was focused on his, his, his identity in Christ, which allowed him to love God and therefore love his neighbor, Sam. He wasn't concerned about what Sam might think of him because he knew, the second visitor knew, that what Sam needed was what Jesus had already accomplished on their behalf. You and I experience the comfort of God for a reason, and it's not just for our benefit. We do not have to be skilled in comforting other people. All it takes is an understanding, however limited, of what Jesus has done for us and and another understanding, however limited, of the comfort that God has provided to us. We don't have to be great theologians to comfort others in their affliction. Because of what God has already done on our behalf, God will use us. He will use us in the lives of other believers. Verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Sharing in Christ's sufferings does not mean that we add anything to his sufferings as if His sufferings were insufficient to satisfy the Father. His suffering was sufficient. Paul's telling us that just as Jesus experienced suffering, so too will we. The suffering we endure is for God's glory. As a result of our faithfulness in the midst of suffering, God is glorified. His name is lifted up. The abundant comfort Paul talks about, the comfort that is more than sufficient, we receive through Christ because of what he did on our behalf. And it's not only a certainty, a fact, but it's more than enough to counter all of the things that press down upon us as we live our lives. The difficulties, the sufferings, the afflictions do not necessarily come our way individually either. It may may seem that one area of our lives, oh, it's getting better, it's getting better, and all of a sudden, boom, 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 we get three or four more things coming at us. God's comfort is enough to deal with every single one of those. Every single one. Paul makes the point that our afflictions and resulting comfort from God through Christ benefits the body of Christ, the church. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. He also knew that believers in Corinth were also experiencing affliction and that together God was cultivating patient endurance in all of them. He recognized that whatever he was going through was going to benefit the church at Corinth. 
The reverse is also true. What the believers in the church today experience benefits the individual believers in the church. How? Well, we're given the privilege of being witnesses to the dispensing of God's grace in our lives, in the lives of our fellow believers. We get to see how, because of, God, <clears throat> because of God's grace, other believers patiently endure the affliction that comes their way. This aspect of community is why being in community, like Dan mentioned a little bit ago, is so important. As a result, we do not give in to despair. No, Paul said our hope for you is unshaken. So instead of despair, we as believers have hope. And that's not a trust in our own ability to get through on our own, depending upon ourselves. Because we can't. We can't get through our suffering on our own. The hope we have is a living hope, a hope in the future. The hope we have is in God, remembering that it is God who sustains us. It is God who strengthens us. It is God who encourages and comforts us in our affliction. Jesus preceded us in all of it. We need to remember that. He's already borne the affliction for you and for me. Tim Keller wrote a remarkable book. If you're experiencing suffering and pain, get your hands on this book. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a biblical theology of suffering. And it's written in a way that's totally understandable. It is phenomenal. In that book, Keller wrote, if the death of Jesus Christ happened for us, and he bore our hopelessness so that now we can have hope, And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, then even the worst things will turn into the best things, and the greatest things are yet to come. The worst things, the death of Jesus Christ, and the fact that he bore our hopelessness on the cross, turned into the best thing, his resurrection, so that now we can have hope, and the greatest things are yet to come, the new heaven and the new earth. Can we comprehend that totally? No. I can't wrap my head around it. But that's exactly what Paul's talking about in in verse 4. Verse 3 and 4, when he talks about the mercies and the comfort, the divine deliverance from our troubles and our difficulties. The gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, turns all of the suffering and pain and affliction around. The gospel guarantees the believer a time in the future when there will be no tears, no suffering, and no pain. Again, Keller, quote, the erosion or loss of hope is what makes suffering unbearable. Human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. So what do you believe about your future? Do you think this is all there is? If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then there is no hope for the life to come, let alone for life now. I mean, without Jesus, this is all there is. On the other hand, if you know that you know that you know that Jesus has saved you, he's rescued you from the consequences of your sin, that is eternal damnation, then you know that you know that you know that this is not all there is. There is so much more. Again, in Revelation 21, John talks to us about the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be with God, where every tear will be wiped from our eyes 
where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, no more suffering or affliction. Now, without question, the suffering and the pain that we experience now is so very difficult. At times, it is, as Paul says in verse 8, utterly burdensome, beyond our strength, immeasurable. We think we can't go on. We feel like we're at our wit's end. Our world is caving in. But when our hearts are gripped by the gospel of grace, when we have a right view of ourselves, when we see ourselves as who we really are in Christ, and then when we think of the suffering Jesus endured on our behalf, when we think of the suffering the Father endured on on our behalf, sending His only begotten Son to pay the penalty of our sin, then we are strengthened, we are encouraged, and we are comforted. The Gospel is our comfort. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God did not withhold His only Son. Jesus came and voluntarily walked to the cross. Did Jesus want to do that? No. Remember in the garden? He asked the Father to let the cup pass. Jesus was in such distress, He was sweating drops of blood. Because He knew what was ahead of Him. If anyone knew what affliction and suffering and pain was all about, it was Jesus. What Jesus endured was worse than anything we could ever imagine. In that he bore the brunt of the Father's wrath and fury. And he was utterly forsaken by the Father. And all that he endured was credited to you and to me. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel. That's good news. And that gives us comfort in our affliction. The Gospel's why the hope Paul talked about is reliable and firm and valid. It's a guarantee that's in concrete from God. It's important to remember, though, that this has absolutely nothing to do with our ability. It has absolutely nothing to do with our spirit level of spiritual maturity. If we think too highly of our spiritual maturity, what are we going to do? Boom! Fall flat on our faces. On the other hand, complete trust in God opens us up to God's comfort and His encouragement. We all experience despair at one time or another, even Paul. He said, for we do not want you to... Now, understand, letters written in those days included information to the churches so that they would know how to pray, right? And so Paul tells them, about difficulties that he and those that were with him had experienced. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we had despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Here Paul uh, provides us with a concrete example of what he's talking about. 
He said, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Put yourself in his shoes. Let's be honest. Many of us have or will at one time or another in our Christian life will think that what has come upon us is so horrible that we can't continue on. The grief will seem unbearable. We lose sleep. We can't concentrate. Our minds wander. Feel our world is caving in. We may find ourselves in bitter anguish as we suffer through the affliction and think death would be a welcomed alternative. We wonder what God is up to. And if we're really honest, we'll wonder how he could really be the sovereign over the entire universe. That is reality, and that's what Paul's talking about here. We, <coughs> excuse me, we must realize that we must find our comfort in God, or we're not going to find any comfort at all. <laughs> we look to our spouses. We look to our families. We look to our children. We look to our job. All those things to try to fix what's going on inside of us. And apart from God, there is no comfort. The comfort that comes in the that comfort that I'm talking about comes in the form of peace, the peace of God, which is not only the calm that we experience when we trust God, but also the sense of protection that we experience when we trust Him. This is what the psalmists were talking about. When in the midst of affliction, they talked about the Lord, saying, The Lord is our strength, our rock, our shield, our refuge, our defender, our stronghold, our salvation, our fortress, our deliverer, the horn of our salvation. That was all about protection. The peace of God provides that protection for you and me. And this sense of protection is the knowledge that nothing, nothing is going to come to our lives that He has not already provided for. Though we do not know the nature of the affliction Paul experienced in Asia, it's not recorded in the book of Acts, Paul wanted them to see exactly what he was talking about, and so he shared this personal illustration. What we do know is the affliction was beyond measure. It couldn't be quantified. He thought for sure he was a dead man. He believed he was going to die because what he experienced was no different than a death sentence being handed down by a judge. The word despair communicates the idea that there was no exit or way of escape available to him. He was so weighed down that he had no hope from a human perspective. He was depressed. But, in verse 10, he says God rescued him from what he perceived to be a death penalty, and Paul says, he will deliver us. In other words, he recognized that it was God who had saved him from that death penalty, from that utterly burdensome affliction in Asia, and it is God who continues to rescue him, to deliver him. Look again. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. The verb deliver has the idea of preserving or keeping intact. That's that's, that's heavy. Preserving or keeping intact. Paul was confident God was going to preserve him. He's talking about the past deliverance by God, the continuing deliverance provided by God. 
That continuing deliverance that He provides for those who are His. He's pointing out how God had preserved him in the past and his assurance that God would preserve him in the future. He was absolutely confident. Notice he said, on him we have set our hope. He knew in his heart that God would continue to deliver him from all trials and suffering and pain. He knew that because he knew that no affliction is able to cancel out God's love and the gospel. Our hope is the gospel. We've been delivered by the gospel. What Jesus did and who he was, and we continue to be delivered by the gospel. So why? Why the affliction? Why did he sense the sentence of death in the midst of affliction? Well, Paul points out, he says it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul saw the deliverance God provides is not unlike being raised from the dead. He recognized that the result of his affliction was his dependence on God and not on himself. He recognized the result was that he was relying upon God and resting in his plan for his life. My friends, get that. The result of your affliction and my affliction, your pain and my pain, is our dependence on God rather than on on ourselves. That's what happens when the gospel is applied to our lives. Jesus delivered us by what he did on the cross. It's it's imputed to us. It's credited to us. He delivers us. He preserves us through the gospel. And he continues to deliver us. Martin Luther used to say that he he had to preach the gospel to his congregation every week. Why? Because they would forget it. He also said I had to preach the gospel to myself every day. Why? Because I forget it. We have been delivered. We've been raised from the dead. God's design for every believer is for us to be persuaded, to be confident, to trust in God alone, not in ourselves. And and that's the gospel too. It's not about us. It's about what Jesus did. It's not about what we do. The word rely also conveys the idea of doing so because we have been trusting Him already in the past. And we are continuing to rely on Him alone. It is existing. It is living in a state of complete trust in God alone. Well, gee, Tom, I can't do that. Yeah, you can! By His power! He enables you to do that. It's when we start looking at ourselves and our own strengths and our own abilities, we think, well, I can't do that. But when we look to Him and we look to what Jesus did on our behalf, we can live a life in which we are completely trusting God alone. Depending on self can be an easy thing to do in times of affliction. Why is that? (laughs) It's our default mode. It's our default mode. Something happens and what do we? what's the first thing you do? If you're honest, you're going to say, I try to figure out how to fix it. That's our default mode. Relying on our own strength, relying on our own abilities. But there's nothing we can do for ourselves. Depending on ourselves or being confident in our own abilities in the midst of our afflictions is useless and gains us nothing. But resting in what Jesus has already done on our behalf enables us to recognize that He delivered us and He will deliver us. 
Paul testifies to the fact that it was God who delivered him in the past. It was God who rescued him from the affliction that he referred to in verse 8. It was God who rescued him from the certain death that he had faced. But he also confidently testifies to the fact that God will rescue him in the future. Any and all affliction in the future. He's certain about that. The language language is such that he is absolutely confident of that. It's not a maybe. It's not a, gee, I hope, like, gee, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I want to go play golf. It's not that. No, it is, it is a fact. Our hope is a fact. We believe what God says, and it's a fact. <clears throat> God wants to wean us off of the world. He wants to wean us from our confidence in ourselves. And He wants to, us to set our hope fully on Him. Suffering, Paul told the Roman church, in chapter 5, results in hope. So do you understand what all that means for you and me? It means we don't have to do it. Getting through the afflictions of this life is not dependent upon our abilities. It has everything to do with God's ability, His strength, His grace, and His gospel. It has everything to do with, with what Jesus did on our behalf. We merely rest in. We don't work for it. We rest in what he's already done. In Psalm 50, 50, Asaph wrote, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. Now, first of all, walking in darkness and has no light. Gee, that sounds like pain and suffering and affliction, doesn't it? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light in the name of the trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Going through affliction, we trust God. We rest in what Jesus has already done. That's God's design for us. Verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Here again, Paul emphasizes the importance of being in community. We need you! Is what Paul is saying. We need you to join with us in prayer, interceding on our behalf, thereby participating in the ministry that God has given to us. He recognized that the prayers of the Corinthian saints were effectual, not only because of the blessing, the gift, in the deliverance that was theirs granted to him and those with him, but because of the outpouring of thanksgiving to God by other believers. It's no different today. Our church emails a newsletter. If you haven't got the, getting, aren't getting the newsletter, sign up for it. It's online. The newsletter goes out, and there's a link in there to go to the prayer requests. Dan asked that those prayer requests be passed out among you this morning if you didn't have access to them. People on that list, Paul would say, need you! We all need our, the prayers of our brothers and sisters. And who do we think we are? Well, they don't need my prayers. Or, even worse, I don't need anybody praying for me. Who do we think we are? Paul, the apostle. We need you! We've got to remember that the churches Paul wrote to were no different than the churches of today in that they were populated by broken and fallen people. 
As a result, just like today, the Corinthians had a tendency to be self-sufficient. And verse 11 blows that tendency out of the water. And what Paul instructs us to remember, because we are a part of the church, we are a body, part of a body of believers. We are dependent upon one another for prayer support and for encouragement. We do not exist in a vacuum. God brought, has brought us together for many purposes, and supporting one another in prayer is just one of those purposes. The excuse provided for forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, that is, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, is just that. It's a lousy excuse. It's, a false, it's false reasoning that enables somebody to do something he or she wants to do or enables them to not do something they don't want to do. In light of Scripture, it doesn't hold water. Brothers and sisters, the result of our affliction is dependence upon our holy and sovereign God. He comforts us in our affliction, and we in turn comfort others with that same comfort. It's not something we have to do. It's something we just do because we get the gospel of grace. Because we know that our ultimate comfort is in the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the comfort that you provide to each of us in any affliction that we experience. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege of mediating that comfort to others on your behalf. Instill in us the desire to be completely satisfied in you and in your peace and completely dependent upon you, for that is your design for us. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for what he did on our behalf, paying the penalty enduring your wrath and fury being forsaken by you and thank you that that is credited to us when we believe thank you for the gospel now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us let to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Amen.